Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech-savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, on to the show with your tech-savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Hello again, this is Matt Halloran for Debit This, Credit That, joined by Matt Wheeler, Managing Partner of Wheeler Accounting and CPA. Today, we're going to discuss the five financial strategies for working families. So, Matt, when you started writing this and, and thinking about this, where, where did this come from? What what sparked this, these seven financial strategies for working families? You know, I've um, I met with a lot of you know, clients usually on the younger end, uh, they come from prior CPA or whatnot. And the, the tax situation is usually pretty straightforward, right? We got W-2 income, maybe a couple investment accounts, maybe we own a house and and pretty much it. And, you know, a lot of times they don't see a lot of value in what a CPA can provide because they could just go on TurboTax and basically do it themselves, right? And to an extent, they're right. But I had one client one time tell me they're, you know, they're asking their CPA for advice. How can we minimize our taxes? You know, what can we do to pay less? And is there anything we can be doing more efficiently? And the, the CPA told them it is what it is. Ooh. And I can't stand that, right? I can't stand that answer. <laughs> That's a because, terrible answer. Right, right. It, it's, it's horrible. There's, there's maybe, and I see where the CPA is coming from because from that current tax year's perspective, He's right, or he or she is right. There's there's nothing they can do to reduce their tax liability in that current tax year. But tax strategy is not like a a single year thing. It's a it's a long term thing. You got to have a plan. You got to develop some long term strategies, and then you realize those benefits over time. You can, if you position yourself right over a period of years, you will save a lot of money. But it, you know, it comes over a period of years. It's not something we can do for a single year, especially when it's last year. And it's already, you know, March or February or whatever, and that last year has gone by and closed. I mean, our options are basically nothing. It mm-hmm. is what it is. But that's not what I tell a client, right? I tell I, we start looking at some of the basic strategies we can work on to lower their long-term tax liability, or at least position themselves better financially. The big problem here then is is that they the 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 working families don't have that long-term tax strategy. And this isn't the first time you've talked about this. We've talked about this in other podcasts, which really does separate you from other accounting firms, in my opinion, is is that that long term view. So so walk us through the problem and uh, and who does this affect when we're talking about working families? That's kind of a large umbrella. Let's try to narrow that down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the problem is basically there there is no strategy, right? There's no long term tax or even financial strategy or if there is, it's starting way too late, and you're losing out on some of those early opportunities that can make a long-term, long-term impact. You know, you always read those, you know, stupid articles on Yahoo or something that if you, you know, don't get a cup of coffee every day, then, you know, that two bucks a day turns into however many tens of thousands of dollars when you're retired or mm-hmm. hundred thousand or whatever, right? But then you're suffering every day with no coffee, which I think is a horrible <laughs> strategy. Me too, brother. I, I don't like that either. Yeah, but people forget about the huge expense items and that kind of stuff, which make a much bigger, bigger impact than the $2 coffee and that you can probably live without. 
But anyway, the, the problem is not not looking at those or having a strategy, and then you know who it really affects. It's 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 younger working individuals or you know young families. You're early in your earnings years. You know you may not be um, self-employed or anything. Maybe that's something you're thinking about doing down the road. But you know right now your tax situation on the surface appears very straightforward, but there's things you can do to have a, a better long-term strategy in place. So what question should I ask myself? So I, I'm sitting here and I'm a young family. I've, maybe we just uh, started a family. You've just had kids. What question should I ask myself? So therefore I can identify, yep. Okay. So I'm a good candidate for these seven financial strategies for working families. I mean, you know, I'll go, th- I'll go through my kind of go-to items, which are these basic seven strategies when I'm sitting down with a client in this situation, you know, you want to first and foremost, make sure you're taking advantage of all your available tax deductions. You may not have a lot, but we want to make sure we're identifying all of those, you know, maxing out your retirement plan at work is like one of the first things we're going to look at, right? It's so easily overlooked, you know, but it's something that's hugely important. Um, <clears throat> you know, do you feel like you're paying a lot in tax and have no deductions, you know, that get a lot of clients like that. And usually we can find a, a few ways to save a few more bucks here and there by identifying stuff they're currently spending money on, or, you know, they have outflows they're not even considering are available for deductions. And then, you know, do you even have a strategy at all? The answer for most people is probably no, you know, so developing a basic strategy, putting that template in place and then sticking to it, you know, those are the questions we're going to ask ourselves to see if we any of those apply to us, and then we kind of go from there. So why why is this so important? I mean, are, are we talking about massive savings here over time, or are we talking about um, little steps to make a bigger impact? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, you know, you, 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 the stupid Yahoo article I talked about, you know, with compounding interest on your investments and that kind of stuff. It's the same concept. Um that the earlier you start, the bigger impact it's going to have over the long term, right? So making tax-efficient choices earlier on will set you up for tax and financial success down the road, you know? Um, And some of these are year-by-year things you can do where they don't have a benefit now, but they do later. Like Like a backdoor Roth IRA, which is one of my strategies, that's a perfect example of one that gets overlooked by people early on, but it has a cumulative effect over years that can make a big difference over the long term. Do you want me to just get into the backdoor Roth IRA thing? Yeah, I (laughs) kind of opened the door on that (laughs) one, buddy. Yeah, let's keep going. Yeah, I mean, so for most folks, you know, one of the first strategies to look at doing is doing maximizing our 401k at work. If you're at work and they have a 401k, you want to max that out, right? You want to get your full employer contribution and you want to do the maximum that the IRS allows you to defer yourself. It's called an elective deferral. So that's currently $18,000 if you're under age 50. And if you're over age 50, you get an extra $6,000 catch up contribution. So it's like $24,000, right? So you want to max out it at first. People often forget you can also contribute to our traditional IRA each year as well, independent of the 401k. You just need to make sure you have enough income that you earn enough earned income where you can do an IRA contribution on top of your 401k, which is basically you have to earn enough for the deferral plus the regular IRA contribution on top of that. That that shouldn't be a problem for someone in this situation. So okay, you you can contribute to a regular IRA. Now you're not going to get a a tax write-off typically because you're in a retirement plan at work. So the phase out on where you get a deduction for putting money in a regular IRA is pretty low income level. It's like, you know, a five figure income level, which 
in Silicon Valley, you're like in the bread line, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, to put the money in the traditional IRA, you can do it, but you're not going to get a tax write-off when you put the money in. It's an after-tax contribution. Now, what you can do, if you have no other money in traditional IRAs, no pre-tax dollars in traditional IRAs, you can convert your traditional IRA contribution of after-tax money into a Roth IRA. Normally, when you do a Roth conversion, you recognize income on the amount of the conversion, but only pre-tax dollars that you're converting to a Roth IRA post-tax dollars. If the money you put in the traditional IRA is all post-tax money and you do a conversion, there's no income to recognize. Hmm. So you can do this Roth conversion every year on your traditional IRA contribution tax-free. You're not permitted to put money directly into a Roth IRA because of the income limitations being mm -hmm. you know, fairly low for most people. But this is a way to do a backdoor Roth IRA contribution, right? And this okay. opened up for us back like in 2010 or something when they changed the rules on Roth conversions. Before, you couldn't do it if you had income over $100,000. When they got rid of that rule, this opened the door for even high-income earners to put a full traditional IRA contribution into an IRA and then convert to a Roth IRA each year. And that's a classic example of where you're not getting any tax impact right now, right? But you're cumulatively adding to a Roth IRA every year, you know, $5,500 a year if you're under 50. That really builds up over time. And then all the earnings in the Roth IRA, those are tax-free when you retire, when you're going to hit 70 or later when you pull them out. Because a mm -hmm. Roth IRA, you don't have to pull it out at 70 and a half. You can leave it in there forever, leave it to your kids. So, you know, this is a, a long-term strategy where if you start early enough, I mean, the savings on this is it's huge. It's mm -hmm. massive, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> and it's one of those overlooked things that's, you know, a very straightforward strategy and pretty easy to do. If you do have money in a pre-tax IRA already, um, there's things we can do to try and get that money out of the pre-tax IRA so you're eligible for this strategy. You got to check with your employer and see if their 401k plan allows a roll in where they allow you to roll pre-tax mm. money into their plan. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> a, lot, a lot of times when someone leaves a job, they take their 401k from that job and they roll it into an IRA. When you do that, you blow the strategy out of the water. You can't do it anymore, mm. right? So to undo that, if your current employer allows it, their 401k plan allows it, you can roll that pre-tax IRA money back into 401k and the 401k assets aren't aren't looked at for purposes of the Roth IRA conversion rules, so they're not not part of the equation. So you want to take that pre-tax money, get it all into your 401k, not have any in the IRA. Mm -hmm. um, also, this strategy applies per spouse. So hmm. maybe one spouse can do it because they don't have any pre-tax IRA money, but the other spouse can't because they have a huge pre-tax IRA. You know, for whatever reason, it's not practical to roll it into their current 401k or they're not working. That's fine. You can still put the after-tax money into the regular IRA, and we can track your after-tax money in there. But the other spouse, you know, they can put the money in and do the conversion every year and still take advantage of the rule. So, you know, there's there's opportunity there. Well, you just talked about two of the seven financial strategies, right, which is to match your pre-tax retirement in your 401k and the backdoor IRA. Um, what are some of the other solutions and strategies for working families that they can, they can implement? Because those were... I mean, the, the the IRA thing seems complicated, and obviously we need to lean on you for that. The 401k maxing out, I think, goodness gracious, if you're not doing that, then then you really just, I mean, you that that's something that somebody can do. They can just walk into their, you know, their their uh, employee assistance program and, and just basically say or talk to their 401k coordinator. But some of these other ones, I don't think people have heard about as much. So let's break down some of the other ones. So we talked about two. Let's talk about the other five. 
You know, another strategy you want to take a look at, and it just sounds so simple, but few people do it, is develop a budget and stick to it. You know, um, there's so many pieces of software out nowadays. There's Mint.com, there's Quicken, QuickBooks, all these things to track your spending, and they download stuff from your bank and categorize it. And a lot of them, you can even start off and go back a few months and download all the transactions and spend, a, you know, an hour or two kind of coding it in. And once you do that and develop a little history of time of, of doing it, then you'll start to see where you're spending your money, right? And where's everything going? And then just develop a budget based on kind of your history, what's, you know, must spend stuff and what's kind of more elective fun things you spend on and that sort of thing and put together a budget and try and stick to it. If you if you got a spending problem, which happens for a lot of people where they're just spending too much, you know, number one, they probably don't even know they're spending that much money. They don't know where they're spending. And so just taking a look at where you're spending, developing a budget, you know, that's huge. You can probably cut some fat right there out of the mm -hmm. budget, you mm -hmm. know, and and develop a, a way to kind of make sure you're saving for retirement or put more money away by cutting out some of the things that are not necessary. I mean, think of how many things you you sign up for. That's like a monthly fee. Mm-hmm. And you sign up for it in the beginning and then you like don't use it a year later and you forgot you're paying for it. And you're paying for it for like seven or eight years. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there's things that all the time, but when you just actually take some time to look back at what you're spending your money and be like, Oh my god, I'm still paying for this, you know, music service. I don't I don't use that one anymore. I use this one instead. And I'm mm -hmm. paying for them both. You know, things like that. I mean that's one of the small things, one of the cup of coffee things. But you know, there's there's bigger things you'll notice too, right? You could just be paying a lot for something that you could do a lot cheaper. Maybe you just don't need or you don't use that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Just like when you go in your garage and you, you know, take something that's all dusty you haven't used in months. Like, do I need this anymore or years? You know, do I need it anymore or should I donate to Goodwill? You know, same same kind of concept. Just reviewing what you have, where you're spending your money, and developing the budget. So that's that's one of the strategies I like to recommend for people is take a look at where you're spending your money, try and, and budget. And try and save a little better. And and when when you have that budget though, that that gives you some again, your 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 focus is this long term. And there's the the second category here for the financial strategies for working families. I think very, very few people do it, but it is so vital. So what is the second one? Second one is to keep at least six months of living expenses in a savings account. Um I think six months of living expenses is a good amount to shoot for. If you can do more, the better. I know some financial advisors that recommend a couple years of living expenses in a savings account in cash liquidity. But at a minimum, you want at least a few months. Six months is better because you never know what's going to happen. Life throws stuff at us all the time. And, you know, the people that don't have the budget, that aren't maximizing the 401k, that aren't doing the backdoor Roth IRA, they're also the ones that, you know, invariably – your car breaks down and you need to put a new engine in it or, you know, you know, a couple thousand dollar repair bill at the worst possible time when you least expect it. Right. And then they put it on the credit card. Now they're paying interest and, you know, you're just digging that hole and it's hard to dig out of. Right. Having that six months of living expenses in there <clears throat> makes such a huge difference for those kind of things that pop up. And additionally, you know, when you have more than that in liquidity available, there are times when investment opportunities come up that you miss out on when you don't have that liquidity available. So having a strong cash position is is pretty important for as a financial strategy to take advantage of anything that comes along the way. You know, if you had a bunch of money in cash when the recession and stock market crash happened in 2008, 2009, you could have deployed that cash at the bottom of the market, you know, 
mm-hmm. when the S&P was at 600 or whatever it was at, right? <clears throat> and you could have made a killing, mm-hmm. you know, if you had the cash available, right? So having that extra money available on the side in case take advantage of opportunities or just for life things that pop up is a very important strategy that you need to be taking advantage of or following. I don't think people realize that you can buy stock and, and, and you know mutual funds and things like that at a discount. And I'm glad that you brought that up because um, as much as we need to keep six months in the bank, there are times to deploy that cash that can be very favorable long term. And when you're talking about I hear this argument often, and millennials specifically don't seem to be as interested in owning a home as they do renting because of the overall headaches and the poor return on investment, in in their opinion. Talk to us about using that as one of the strategies. The tax tax code uh, basically heavily favors real estate, right? There's a lot of um, favorable rules available for real estate ownership. You can deduct the mortgage interests. You can deduct your property taxes. And if you have investment properties and that kind of thing, you can do even more. I mean, this is actually very timely because, you know, we just elected a real estate mogul as our president, right? And there's a lot of flack he's getting for not releasing his tax returns. And I'm willing to bet they show very little income because he's taking advantage of a lot of these tax rules where he gets major write-offs on these properties and investments because of the way the tax code's structured. So, mm-hmm. you know, by taking advantage of some of these rules yourself, you can you can minimize your taxes as well. It's all it's all legal, but it's just that's what the way the tax rules are structured, right? So, by buying a home, that gives you some write-offs, the mortgage interest and property taxes in particular for a personal residence that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise have if you're renting. Um, if you are going to rent because you can't afford to buy at this time or, you know, you're not sure you're going to stay in the area long term or something like that, that's fine. But in theory, you should be saving on top of that. You should take a look at what your house payment would be if you're going to buy and what your rent is. And that delta, I'd be shoving that into my savings account. Okay. I'm pretend I'm pretend I'm owning and take that delta and saving because that savings is part of the advantage of renting. And you can build that, you know that investment position up over time to grow into a down payment or to grow into something else you can invest in and earn, earn income on that. If you just, if you don't think about it in that terms, you just spend what you spend on rent and don't save anything on top of that. You're going to, you're going to miss out on that right there. Right. Hmm. So <clears throat> I try to look at that Delta there between what it would cost to kind of own your home and how much you're paying in rent, presuming that the rent is lower than the cost of ownership and then taking that Delta shoving it away in a savings account that can be your future down payment or that can be some capital you can deploy into a future investment opportunity or or whatever. There's a lot of discussion about life insurance and and I'm sure this is a statistic that you've heard but 70% of Americans are underinsured. Now you have that you actually think of insurance as one of the financial strategies. Talk to us about that please. Yeah, life insurance um <clears throat> It's something you need to consider, especially when you have a you know young family, young kids in your working years. Uh, you know, if, if the worst happens, you want to make sure they're at least taken care of or can get get on their feet and uh, you know make it through something like that, right? At least for a period of time. So, I'm generally not a fan of the whole life policies. Um, you know, if you, I always think of Groundhog Day and the. Yeah, the guy who the one keeps ins- insurance salesman, yeah. right? When he jumps in the puddle like <laughs> yeah. every day. Oh, I love like, that. You know, those those are the kind of guys that sell life insurance. Um, they sell it for a reason. They make huge commissions and fees, right? When they sell a whole life policy, it's all wrapped up into the policy, and they just 
they make a killing on that stuff. Uh, so you got to keep that in mind. That's why they're trying to push it on you, right? And a lot of times they tout tax benefits of the investment and everything. And, you know, over the long term, I'm not sure that's the best route to go. But term life insurance, where you just get a life insurance policy for a, a fixed payout amount for a, a number of years, a kind of ongoing basis, that's pretty inexpensive and cheap. You know, you can get a million dollar policy probably for anywhere from like 300 to five, $600 a year or something. Um, depending on your age and kind of your position, that's not a lot of money to, to buy some security just in case. So, um, this is one of those situations where I do recommend, you know, spending a little extra money and getting something in place. A term policy is good just to make sure you're providing that cushion until you build up your assets enough that you can basically self-insure where something to happen and your family can live off of the assets you've, you've saved over time. But usually when you start out working and you're, you're in a young, you have a young family or you just, you know, just getting going in life, you don't have assets they can live off of if something happens. So term life is the perfect thing to fill that gap. I remember when I bought my first life insurance policy, uh, and, and it was about that uh, about that amount that you're referring to. There was just a, a feeling of not necessarily security, but knowing that if something happened outside of my control, that that my family was going to be well taken care of. So there there is a there is an emotional facet to that too. And in fact, all of these seven financial strategies, I believe, have a, a very strong emotional content to them. So let's let's go back through six of them, and then let's finish with the seventh one, and then we'll wrap up today's podcast. Sure. You know, <clears throat> first six, I think it was the backdoor Roth IRA strategy. It's one of my favorite go-to strategies. Um, maxing your pre-tax retirement accounts at work. So maxing the 401k or 403b, whatever plan you're in, you know, taking advantage of the maximum amount the tax rules allow you there. Uh, you know, third, sticking, developing a budget and sticking to it. Hugely important in conjunction with that. Number four is keeping at least six months of living expenses in a savings account. That way you're prepared for if anything happens or you're poised to take advantage of opportunities as they arise. Uh, fifth, you know, own your own home and take advantage of the real estate rules. Uh, save a little more money there in your taxes by having some write-offs. Six, obtain a term life insurance policy. Provide that security for your family. Have a little bit of that peace of mind for relatively inexpensive you know, financial commitment. And then the seventh strategy, and this one applies if you have children, is, you know, contributing to 529 plans for your child's education. A 529 plan is kind of like a IRA account for education, specific for education. So you can fund money into this account, to, to these accounts. Um, <clears throat> there's no limit really on how much you fund in necessarily. So you can front load a bunch. There are gift tax implications if you give too much at once. You can give someone a gift $14,000 a year. You and your spouse could gift one of your children $28,000 a year then. If you're going to do more than that, we have some gift tax issues we need to navigate through. It's You're not going to pay any gift tax. we got to do a gift tax filing and make some elections to make sure you're not getting penalized for giving more than that amount. But um, <clears throat> you know, there's basically no upper limit on the contribution you can put into the account. All of the earnings on the investments in the account are – tax deferred so you don't pay any current tax on it so it's kind of like an IRA in that respect and if the money's pulled out for education in the future higher education so you know college basically or a master's program that kind of thing then you don't pay tax on the earnings or the principal obviously that you put in so it's all tax free coming out so then it's kind of like a Roth IRA 
if you don't, if the child doesn't use it or need it, uh, say you get lucky and they get a scholarship or you know whatever, you can you can change the beneficiary so you can kind of roll the account from one kid to another kid, or you can change the beneficiary to another you know related family member like a niece or a nephew, you know some of those kind of things. So there's a way to kind of move the money around without getting penalized because if you take it out and you don't use it for education, you do pay tax on the earnings and there is a 10% penalty on those earnings for pulling it out, not for education. So you want to make sure you use the account for education. I try and recommend don't overfund the account, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't want to front load it too much and then you have too much in the account and it's hard to get it out without taking a little bit of a penalty. But you know these accounts are good for saving for college basically early on mm -hmm. and not paying tax while the money's in there kind of earning income. So if you just invested the same amount in your Schwab account and you have dividends and interest, you're paying tax on that every year. You know, that's not that's not as tax efficient as putting it in the 529 plan where you basically, you know, invest in like a menu of mutual funds and mm -hmm. that account can can earn income tax free, hopefully, when used for education and you're you're saving for your child's education as tax efficiently as possible. Implementation. So if somebody wants to implement these seven financial strategies, do they do them with you or do they have to have a team? How, how do you suggest that people dive into this? You know, some of these strategies are something you'd probably do with like a financial advisor or someone. Um, you Well, I, can, I have to step back. You can do any of these yourself. You don't need to have a financial advisor or anyone else. I can, we can give you the list. You know, we're going to have this blog post on our website and everything else. So you can kind of go through it. Um, you don't need someone, but usually it's helpful to maybe go through some of the finer details with, you know, me or your CPA or with a financial advisor who can help you out on certain portions of it. But, you know, implementing is pretty straightforward. We just got to take a look at each one and then making sure we're taking advantage of them uh, and make sure we're doing it according to the rules. But, um, you know, we have a little more information on our blog post on our website and people can always reach out to me if they have specific questions. Fantastic. And, and remind everybody how they can get in touch with you, please, Matt. Website, wheelercpa.com, and uh, my email is matt at wheelercpa.com, so feel free to shoot me an email and uh, you know try to get back to you and answer your questions. Fantastic. And Matt, thank you very much for walking us through the seven financial strategies for working families. And uh, if you want to, you know, go ahead and reach out to them and, and through the website and through their email address, which we'll make sure we have in the show notes, because this is something that, uh, again, Wheeler Accounting really looks at the long term tax strategies, which I firmly believe makes them wonderfully unique and different within the marketplace. So Matt, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Matt. And I hope all of you have a wonderful day and we'll talk to you soon on the podcasts.